Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Today's episode of The Ringer MLB Show is brought to you by SeatGeek, the presenting sponsor for my podcast, as well as the only fan-friendly app for buying and selling tickets for sports, music, and baseball. With just two taps on your phone, you can instantly buy SeatGeek tickets to an event, and you can enter that event just using your phone. No paper tickets. Drop your old ticket app. Use one that's built for 2016. Download the free SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com. And don't forget to check out my fairly new website, TheRinger.com, for the very best in sports, tech, and pop culture coverage. And don't forget about The Ringer Podcast Network, which features Keeping It 1600, The Watch, Channel 33, Shack House, and our Ringer shows for the NFL, NBA, and MLB. And finally, don't forget about my new television show, Any Given Wednesday, which runs every Wednesday night at 10 p.m. on HBO and reruns on HBO Now, HBO Go, and HBO On Demand. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh, I'm a staff writer for TheRinger.com, joined as always by my fellow staff writer for The Ringer, Michael Bauman. Hello, Michael. Hello, we're quickly running out of champagne over here. I know, yeah, right. We've reached the final round of the playoffs, and I have to say, at the beginning of these playoffs, I did a draft of playoff matchups with the guys from Cespedes Family Barbecue, and Cubs Indians was first off the board. So I think we have gotten the best case scenario, right? I mean, either way, we get a team with the longest drought in its league. We get two interesting teams, two fun teams, two good storylines. This really could not be better just for neutral people. It could be better for fans of other eliminated yeah. teams. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's great for uh, for the Great Lakes region as well, I think. <laughs> right. All right, so at the end of the show, we're going to do some prop bets. You love to make me make predictions, so I will just because I love that. making you uncomfortable. Yeah, <laughs> right. But before that, we're just going to do a, a World Series preview episode. That's what people want this time of year. That's what we want to do too. So we will start right now. We are going to adhere to old political coverage rules here and devote equal time to each team that is playing in this series. So we're going to have. One guest who covers each team to tell us about that team, and we're going to start off with the Cubs. So for the Cubs, we are speaking to Sahadev Sharma, who covers the Cubs and the White Sox, although I guess not so much the White Sox right now, for <laughs> for the Athletic Chicago. Sahadev, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on, guys. What's going on in White Sox world these days? Anything exciting? Yeah, Chris Getz, <laughs> player development. Hey, nice. I've Very seen exciting. more press about this than any like <laughs> down the masthead front office hire, maybe in big league history. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you're probably looking forward to having more time to cover White Sox front office personnel moves, but uh, maybe maybe in 10 days or so you can get to that. For, for now, you're probably focusing on the Cubs and you were there for the clincher on Saturday. Can you give us a sense of the atmosphere there relative to the typical atmosphere for Cubs games? I mean, it's it's been wild for every playoff game. You know, I had a feeling that they'd be able to do this because I'd, I'd watched this team all season. And when they kind of get going, they get on this roll and they get super focused and they're able to just meet any challenge. And I know Clayton Kershaw is the ultimate challenge, but they, I, I just had a feeling that Saturday was the day and, and they obviously took care of it. The moment that really stood out to me was uh, Chapman's wrapping up the game. I'm videotaping it. I'm standing on the concourse with a bunch of other media and we're all just kind of shooting video. 
and this older woman, not not super old, but you know maybe fifties or sixties, uh, she's just uh, in tears with her husband, and she turns around, and I'm trying to focus on the the scene all around me and and the the field and, and stay in my journalism uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> format, and she just turns around and looks at me, and she's just tears streaming down her face, and she says isn't this a beautiful moment? And she just holds my hands <laughs> as she's crying. And it was just like, uh, yes, yeah. beautiful moment. Uh, gotta stay professional here. You're thinking Chris gets, Chris gets. So yeah. it was, uh, I mean, and that's just how it was. I think all throughout the, the ballpark, a lot of emotion and, you know, these fans have been waiting for this for forever, for all of their lives. So to be able to be there for that moment and see the the scene around the park in the park, uh, it was it was pretty amazing. And wow, I was writing till one, two in the morning and I could still hear people singing Go Cubs Go <laughs> in the press box. I could hear it uh, from the streets. And speaking of scenes, uh, I became aware of the Cubs uh, bullpen catcher when he made <laughs> national news by stripping down to uh, a Speedo with a hot dog drawn on it, I believe is is the uh, the scientific definition of, of what he was wearing. So is there anything you can tell me about Chad Noble or is this just sort of Bacchanalia that's just taken over everybody? Yeah. Chad is is quite the goofball. He's uh he he likes to have fun. He's a guy that if you've noticed in the Cubs bullpen, they don't move if there's a foul ball hit their way, right? I, I think we've seen Travis Wood get hit with the ball once or twice, but but they they have this little thing that you know if a if a foul ball comes their way, we're not moving. If it hits us, it hits us. And Chad Noble's the the guy that kind of spurred that mo uh, movement. He he likes to have fun. He, he gets along with all the guys. He's also he's a Northwestern grad. He, I, I believe he was a catcher at Northwestern. He was in the minors with the Cubs, and they you know he. he couldn't really cut it and and they basically said hey you you, you have a great personality we, we love your makeup if you want to be the bullpen catcher we think you'd fit in with the group and uh he definitely has uh, and uh you know he's a smart guy but he also he he likes to play it up and and have some fun as well good well we had to cover that because we have a strict if there's nudity in baseball we will cover it <laughs> policy on this podcast we also cover bullpen catchers yeah we do <laughs> So both people I'm talking to right now wrote articles about Kyle Hendricks and his reinvention this season. Where do you think he stacks up right now as far as who Cubs fans should be most confident in on the mound in the World Series? How would you rank him relative to everyone else on the staff? I think he's number two. I mean, Lester's on a roll. Lester's done this before. Arietta and Lackey, you know, they're solid. I, I trust them. But Hendricks was locked in, and when Hendricks gets a lead, he's able to pitch his game. Uh, the second he had the lead, I talked to some front office people, and all of them, to a man, and the players as well, they said once he had the lead, they knew he could do what he does out there and pound the zone, uh, get them to chase when needed. But he even admitted in game two he couldn't do what he normally wants to do because Kershaw was on his game. Kershaw was pitching a shutout. And he had given up the solo home run, 
and he knew he couldn't give up any more if he wanted to keep his team in the game. So he's kind of nibbling a little, trying to get them to chase. And and the Dodgers did a good job of not chasing too much. And and I think that moved his pitch count up. I think he only lasted five and a third, and and he had four walks. Really uncharacteristic for Kyle, especially the with all the changes he's made and how how good he's gotten. But what what you saw on Saturday is the guy that he's become. It's not the Dodgers had an off night. He's done this over and over and over again since about May or June. And it's just become who he is. And I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop. I was sure that this guy's just a back of the rotation arm, you know, and, and that's great. That That's a great piece to have a, a guy that barely touches 90 miles per hour. He somehow blew, blew past his ceiling, hard work, smart guy, willing to listen to the coaching staff and the scouts who who told him he needed to use all four of his pitches, even though he didn't have the confidence in it. He saw the numbers uh, and how predictable he was and, and realized this is what I have to do if I want to succeed. And he's made it work. And it, it's, it's impressive to watch just how he evolved. I mean, the yesterday or Saturday, he used the four seamer so often. It was, he never used to use that pitch. He never used it. And I, I want to say he got five swinging strikes on it. He, he made Jock Peterson look real bad with a high strike, with a, with a high four-seamer. Maybe it was Grindal. I don't know who the second one was, but he got someone else on a high four-seamer. And that's, you know, he's not pu- pumping it up there like Noah Syndergaard. He, that, that's barely touching 90. I think it was 88, the one to Jock. And that's, <laughs> man, it, when, when you can get strikeouts up in the zone and also have that nasty change up and two seamer, uh, that's just a nice little arsenal. And he'll flash the curveball every once in a while just to keep guys on their toes. It's, it's a nice, he's a nice pitcher that's just so much better than I think anyone expected, even people in the organization. I think Kyle would even say he's, he's blown past his own yeah. expectations for himself. <laughs> so let's go to uh, to Kyle Schwarber, who has been, while all this was going on, Kyle Schwarber was playing in an Arizona Fall League game, and he is suddenly uh, suddenly has the potential to deliver a Kirk Gibson moment after he's had five plate appearances uh, all season and blew out his knee. What do you make of this? What do you think the odds are of him making the World Series roster? And if so, deliver, you know, contributing in any significant way? I think it's pretty good that he makes the roster unless, it, you know, he just he, the knee doesn't feel right or he feels really off at the plate, which I mean, he's been swinging all week. He's been swinging since Monday. Uh, he saw live pitching on Friday. He played in a game on Saturday that unless he's in pain or unless he just feels off at the plate, I think they're going to do it. I think they're going to put him on the roster. I was thinking about it. I kept thinking that they'd, they'd put Coglin back on the shelf. I think it makes the most sense to just put Resistrisny back on the shelf and go back to uh, 11 pitchers like they did in the first mm-hmm. round. This isn't a lefty heavy lineup like the Dodgers and Giants were. Resistrisny wasn't even used. Imagine having Schwarber, even as the DH, Schwarber can really impact the game. He can, as a pinch hitter, he can impact the way Francona ends up using Miller. It's almost like Madden could force uh, Francona to use Miller at certain times if he pulls Schwarber out there in a certain situation. It it could work that way if Schwarber even looks halfway decent at the plate. I know Theo was very enthusiastic when, when speaking about him. I spoke to... 
Theo Epstein about him on Saturday, and he said they watched the video of him taking live uh, live pitches on Friday. Uh, James Ferris, who's a who's a guy pitching in the Cubs organization, pitching in the Arizona Fall League, tossed him uh, eight at bats, I believe, and and Theo said he squared up about in in three of those at bats, he squared up the ball. Uh, pretty well drove one to the warning track and a couple singles up the middle as Theo described it and and he said he just looked good in the at-bats he looked he looked like Kyle so I think that's a they're all excited about this and I I think it's going to happen I'd be a little surprised if it doesn't they've gone this far with it and and suddenly it it would be a surprise to me if if we don't see Schwarber on that 25-man roster and that matchup with Miller, I mean, just leaving alone, you know, I've been on the Schwarber bandwagon since he was a sophomore in college, but yeah, that's, it's five live plate appearances in the past year and potentially breaking that cold spell by going left on left against Andrew Miller. Like that's one of the, one of the managerial battles that I think is going to wind up defining this, uh, this world series of the two teams quality of play is anywhere close. And, you know, Madden is pinch hit a lot. He's double switched. He's, you know, he's managed this team in game within an inch of its life. So with the, the DH and if they do carry Schwarber, that would limit his options in terms of, of moving position players around a little bit over under 9% chance that Joe Madden loses the DH in an, in a game in Cleveland at some point this series. Oh man. So I, I was talking to someone about this and you can, as long as you don't take someone from the field, what what's the exact rule of how do you lose the DH? If you move your DH to a position. Okay, so if you move the DH to a position, so uh, that'd be pretty unlikely, right? If he, unless he doesn't go with Schwarber right out of the gate, because Schwar- there's no way Schwarber is going to play the field. No, I don't think he's even been cleared to play the field, so they they just they won't do it. I'd be surprised if he they may have him run the bases, but if he's a critical base runner, they'll probably pinch run for him too. So you know we we mainly see Schwarber a limited amount. Uh, I don't think he's a, we're going to see Madden lose the DH here. Although I guess we've seen so many crazy things uh, with him, I wouldn't rule it out. But I'd be surprised if that happens, especially if Schwarber's actually on the roster. And how much Jason Hayward would we see in this series if you were making out the lineup? Oh, if I was making out the lineup. Now you're putting me on the spot here. Uh, <laughs> since there's not, it's not like the Dodgers and a ton of lefties, I would, I wouldn't feel too uncomfortable having him in there in certain matchups. If, if it goes all seven, you know, three or four of the games start there, see how he's looking at the plate. He does bring a lot to the table on defense. You can't deny it. Joe loves the defense. I understand the value he brings. I'm not even going to. Uh, touch on how Cubs fans feel about the whole situation. He brings a ton of value defensively. You could argue that Almora can bring almost as much defensively and maybe there's equal to more offensive potential at the moment, maybe not long term. I'd like to believe that Hayward's going to get back in a groove at some point in his future with an offseason to kind of figure things out. But I think it's it's hard to expect anything from him right now. He had that triple in his first at bat of this past NLCS, he had a couple games in against San Francisco that I saw him hitting some line drives and he had a nice double. Outside of that, it's been the same mess we've seen all for majority of the season, pop ups and ground outs. 
uh nothing nothing to do with luck it's just bad mechanics and 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 i think there's a mental block going on something's going on mentally and combine that with the mechanics and and you get what you see so i i think there's value to have him out there and i think joe will have him out there occasionally especially with the dh allowing him to have one extra bat in there but he may he may sit at Wrigley occasionally, especially if the matchup dictates as much. So one matchup that I'm sort of looking forward to is John Lester with his famous problems throwing to the bases and you know how he and David Ross have sort of managed to hold down the running game against this Indians team that led the American League in stolen bases, has Coco Crisp and uh and Rajay Davis and Lindor and Kipnis can run a little bit too. How do you anticipate, you know, the Cubs tamping down that running game with Lester on the mound? Is that going to is that something that would keep you up at night if you were Joe Madden? I think it's a definitely a legit concern with the Indians because this is this is a team that has run, they know how to run, they succeed at it. They have the guys to do it. It's not just a it's not just a, you know, a threat because Lester's on the mound. It's a threat with anybody on the mound. So I think they'll try and take advantage of it. The most important thing is Lester needs to focus on the batter. He can't allow their base runners to to distract him. Of course, if the leadoff guy gets on and he steals second and third, that's an issue. But he just has to focus on the batter. I think that's what Joe's always told him. Joe's reinforced that throughout the past two years. They have their little ways of getting around these things. Look for David Ross to be to be active with the back pick. He's had, including this year's playoffs, he has 12 over the past two seasons, and he had 11 in his first 13 seasons. So they're clearly working on this. Ross has a cannon for an arm. I think uh, StatCast numbers are showing this, that he just he has ridiculous uh, release times, and he has such a strong arm. It's really impressive for a guy his age to be doing what he does behind the plate. He He really helps neutralize the issues, but they're still there. And I think Cleveland will have a little bit of an advantage if they get the right guys on base against Lester. It's up to Lester to keep those guys off base and then just to, when they are on base, to just keep it out of his mind and focus on the people at the plate. That's madness said it over and over again. And I think it, that's the best you can hope for him to do. He cannot, he, you don't want him throwing to the base right now because you can step off, you can change your timing, change your rhythm, do all those things. But if he starts throwing to the bases, it's going to get in his head and it's going to distract him from, from the task at hand. And what do you expect out of Arietta? We, we know the whole second half storyline about maybe losing his feel for his slider and not throwing it as much. And then, it seemed in his most recent start as if it had come back and he was going to it more often, but then he ended up with sort of the the same shaky line as he's had more and more often down the stretch. So do you expect a return to form? Is there any way to forecast that right now? Yeah, I think it, uh, what you said at the end there, is there any way to forecast it? I, I've been, uh, I thought that St. Louis start, the second to last start was vintage Jake. And then he went out there and threw that stinker in Pittsburgh. Uh, he's been so, so in his two outings uh, in the playoffs, not terrible, not great. You can say, well, you know, Yasmani Grandal hit a real nice pitch. He executed his pitch, but he hit it. Well, last year they, they weren't hitting his mistakes and Jake would even say that, Hey, they're, Guys even missed my mistakes. They didn't hit any pitches last year, and now they're they're not missing my mistakes, and sometimes they're even hitting the pitches he executes properly. So I don't know if that's an excuse or if that's just uh, luck going against him. I, I think he, he's certainly not as crisp. The slider comes and goes. That was such a big pitch for him last season, and, and it's just... 
it's looked a lot better in the playoffs than it did for majority of the season. There, there were times where he barely threw it during the season and, and I didn't, the reason was he had no feel for it. He, he told me as much. He just didn't have feel for it. I think if he has that going for him, he can have a nice night. I don't expect dominance from him anymore. If it happens, we know he has that potential. We saw it against a strong St. Louis team that was fighting for a playoff spot. So there's no doubt he has that potential. I just uh, I don't expect it anymore like I did a year ago. Uh, it was a surprise when he gave up hits, let alone runs, last year. Now it's two or three runs through six, and if he can limit the walks, you're you're happy with the outing. And yeah, even as you're downplaying uh, Jake Arrieta, this rotation could be a huge advantage uh, over Cleveland's depending on the status of Danny Salazar, who's got his own Schwarber story sort of going yeah. uh, right now, and Trevor Bauer, who miraculously didn't bleed out on the mound in Toronto. <laughs> so this just strikes me because of the, the instability of Cleveland's rotation and because of Terry Francona's aggressiveness with his bullpen sort of makes this tough to model as opposed to, you know, as opposed to traditional bullpen management. You know, I just, the number that I've been tossed around is 538 saying that the Cubs are 63% to win the World Series. Does that strike you as accurate, high, low, or do you even know how to how to predict the series with so many variables? Yeah, I mean, what Francona's done just kind of blows me away. I didn't think Cleveland had a chance. Every, you know, I've picked against them in every single series so far, and, you know, I, I'm going to pick against them in this series, but 63% seems really high. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, we've, all three of us have watched a lot of baseball and we know how the odds work and that seems high. I know they're starting pitching. Just you look at that and you say they shouldn't win very many games, but they've done it and they've shut down two of the best offenses in baseball in doing so. The, the Cubs, I mean, when the Blue Jays are clicking, I don't think the Cubs are as good as the Blue Jays or Red Sox offenses. So they're close, but they're not, they're not at that level. And if the Indians pitch anywhere close, these are going to be great games and, and a tight series that it, I think back to 2005 when the White Sox won, they swept the Astros, but every game was really close. It was a tight series that every game was a nail biter. I could see the Cubs winning this in four or five and every game being like that or vice versa, the, uh, the Indians winning it in four yeah. or five. And that's sort of how it was in last year's World Series, too. You know, it was a bunch of rel relatively close games. Yeah. So, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised by any outcome. I, but yeah, the pitching, if we're looking at the matchups, the I think the only place where it's clear there's a huge edge is the Cubs starting pitching. And then if you want to, I mean, just because the, the, the Indians defense is great, but the Cubs is just historically good. So I guess they have a huge edge on every team and probably 99% of teams that have ever played the Cubs have a huge edge on defense. They just get everything and turn everything. I mean, that double play that they turned to end the NLCS. I watched that again. I guess I didn't realize how impressive that was. That was a pretty slow grounder, and Javi Baez just made a ridiculous turn. The defense is special. They they just get everything. They're able to make simple plays. They're able to make the tough play. They just do it all, and then they do more than than should be done. 
<laughs> there's there are times where you're like, well, that they shouldn't have gotten the double play there. Oh, they shouldn't have even gotten an out there. You don't know how they pull these things off, but they have these athletic freaks, uh, especially up the middle with Russell and Baez. So that's only two places where I'd say, yeah, the Cubs have a clear edge. Everywhere else, you could argue uh, for either either side. Well, since you brought up Baez, we'll end with one question on him. Everyone who didn't already know has found out how much fun he is to watch this postseason. And of course, he was the co-MVP of the NLCS, and he's hit very well in both of these playoff series. So my question is, will he build on this next year? Is this sort of like a Daniel Murphy situation where he has the great postseason and everyone says, okay, but he's going to come back to earth and then no, he's one of the best hitters in the league the following year? I'm not saying that will happen to Baez, but, you know, he was exploitable on offense this year. He was a below average hitter relative to the league, at least over the course of the season. So how good is he or or how good do you expect that he will be? On defense alone, we know he's special. He's a great base runner. The offense was a work in progress and you saw signs of it getting better throughout the year. And in the playoff, he just clicked. I don't know if it'll click to this level. Uh, You brought up Daniel Murphy. Uh, Yeah, I don't know if that can happen to him, at least not next year. But he's always been that crazy offensive ceiling. I think he puts in the work and he's made the adjustments. I think he's he's on the trajectory to be a star. There's no doubt that he has the confidence and the ability. He just needs to, you know, there's there's certain things he needs to work on at the plate. There are times where he he go he likes to go 100 miles per hour at all times, and I think there there are moments when he just needs to pull back. And uh, I actually saw it. You saw it with the game winning hit in Game Four of the NLDS. O2. The guy was a terrible O2 hitter. Most people are, but he was just abysmal. You get him O2, he was done. And lasted this all the entire season. He actually had like a OPS above, I want to say 600, no O2 counts. And he got that game winning hit on an O2 count. And that's, he's just become a different player. It, it was one of those slow burns with him. You thought he was a bust, but he, he slowly but surely got better on offense. I think he's still got some more work to do, and I think he'll he'll get there. Maybe not the crazy ceiling that he once had, but with his defense and with his base running, if he's just slightly above average on offense, he'll never be an on-base freak. But l- let's see if he can tap into that power once again and, and get to the 25-30 home run level. I'm not sure if he'll get to that 40 like everyone expected for him just because he's had to make some changes with the bat. But I, I think he the overall package could be special. 2017, I'm not ready to 100% go there, but I wouldn't rule it out. The guy's a the freak of nature. He's just a special talent, and everything that he he puts his mind to, he seems to be able to accomplish. And he's super – he toes that line of uh, confidence and cocky to the way that it's kind of endearing. I, I love watching him play, and I love watching – listening to him talk because he, he's so confident in his ability, and, and he has fun with it. So you can read the rest of Sahadev's work and the rest of the staff at The Athletic Chicago at theathletic.com. You can follow Sahadev at Sahadev Sharma. Sahadev, thanks for coming on. Good luck maintaining your objectivity over the next uh, week to 10 days. <laughs> thanks, guys. Take care. All right, so that is one World Series contender down, one to go. So it's time to turn our attention to the Cleveland Indians. And to talk about Cleveland, we are going to talk to the man who covers them for MLB.com, Jordan Bastian. Hey, Jordan. How you doing, Ben? All right, so the Indians have had six days to rest. Historically, that hasn't meant that much. David Schoenfeld looked it up and found that since the wildcard era began, the team that had the most rest before the World Series has won 11 out of 21 series. So 
no big deal, but it does seem like the Indians maybe need that rest more than most teams do. So can you give us the latest on the questionable starters, Trevor Bauer and Danny Salazar? Yeah, I think the rest is going to do this team very good, especially with the way Terry Francona has been leaning on his relievers so heavily. We've seen a lot of 30, 40 pitch outings from, you know, Cody Allen and Andrew Miller. And, you know, now we're going to probably see that again because he's got them totally fresh and ready for the World Series. But along the lines of the rotation, Trevor Bauer, you know, when we talked to him a couple days ago, he said he will be ready to pitch game one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven. And I don't doubt that in his mind, he would tell the team he's available for every single game, regardless of which game they actually want him to pitch. Because he, you know, he, based on his training program and everything, he really prides himself on always being available and doesn't believe in pitch counts and all that kind of stuff. So in reality, he needs the days to heal. You know, they thought he had enough time to heal from his drone-related laceration on his right <laughs> pinky finger. That's a great phrase. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think we all saw live there on national television that it did not heal totally as he would have hoped. It was pretty ugly and it was dripping blood. He actually chose to wear the blue tops that day because he was hoping it would hide the blood a little longer from the umpires. So he needs the time to heal. And if he goes in game three or four, that's 10 or 11 days. They've got hand specialist, Dr. Thomas Graham, Moonlight Graham, as we like to call him. <laughs> you know, he'll be, he'll be checking him out and hopefully he'll be in a good spot. And then as far as Danny Salazar goes, we saw him throw a two inning simulated game in Toronto. He was scheduled to throw a three inning simulated game this weekend. You know, we'll find out what the progress is there. But if you have Salazar for three-plus innings, it becomes an interesting scenario given the way Francona's used his bullpen in October. You know, if you can get three or get him into the fourth and you can get an early lead or you have, uh, you know, somebody kind of piggybacking with them, maybe you have Ryan Merritt available. You know, that's an interesting situation the way we've seen Terry Francona go to Miller early or go to Brian Shaw or Dan Otero early to try and kind of clamp down on these leads in the middle of the game and kind of stretch out a save situation over four or five innings almost. So right now we haven't heard yet if Salazar will be available for the World Series, but it certainly sounded a lot more optimistic the last time we talked to Francona than in the previous two rounds of the playoffs. And is there any fear of Miller and Allen wearing down? Because, I mean, they've been good for three innings pretty much every day so far in the postseason. Like, is this just the, the plan, you know, and they really haven't shown any vulnerability either. No, I mean, we've seen high pitch counts for both those guys at times during the regular season. But obviously, Tito wouldn't lean on them like that when you have so many games and so many days. You know, I think the built-in off days is really what has helped fuel this. You know, where he can look ahead and go, you know, if I if I use Miller for 35, 40 pitches, you know, I have a day off coming or, you know, things like that. And he also has the weapons around Miller, you know, in Shaw and Otero and Allen to make the way he's using Miller possible. You know, I think a lot of people have kind of focused on how unconventional it is and will this change the way bullpens are being viewed and things like that. Well, this is a lot of unique circumstances, including the arms he has around Miller to do it but these guys have proven to be resilient you know brian shaw will take the ball every single game cody allen kind of has that same mentality and at times we've seen when they've been given layoffs they've been a little rustier they seem to be better when they're used more days in a row so that's kind of what francona has echoed along with those guys and i mean right now when they can see the off season they have all those months of rest coming none of those guys down in the bullpen are going to say hey i'm not available under the current circumstances 
And I don't think we need to necessarily use psychology to explain why the Indians are winning. They're a good team, and they happen to have just played well at, at the right time of year. But it does seem as if Terry Francona, from what we can tell, has done a pretty good job of preparing these guys to play. And I assume that the Indians have the feeling, at least, that they have kind of come together as a team in the wake of the injuries that caused some people to write them off for October. So, you know, whether or not it has anything to do with the fact that they're here, how are they kind of feeling as a clubhouse right now? Yeah, I mean, I think you kind of hit on it there. I, I wrote a piece yesterday where actually I kind of posed the question, if things had gone according to plan, would they be here? You know, because so many things have gone wrong that it's opened the door for so many sort of unexpected guys to step up you know Tyler Naquin playing a role this year Jose Ramirez getting a chance to blossom as an everyday player because Michael Brantley was out or even now the cult hero Ryan Merritt for his performance you know he doesn't even get a get a spot on the roster if Trevor Bauer isn't up late one night you know playing with his drone and slicing his hand open you know so there's all these things that have gone wrong that have kind of created opportunity Josh Tomlin was out of the rotation and then when Salazar injured his forearm you know, Josh Tomlin was needed to be back in the rotation. And then he had a one six nine ERA the rest of the way after he was put back in the rotation in September. So, so many things have gone wrong that it has, to your point, kind of fueled this mentality in that clubhouse that no matter what happens, they can overcome it. They've done that this year, whether it was the Bauer pinky game in the playoffs or Carrasco getting his hand fractured two pitches into his outing and then the bullpen piecing together 10 shutout innings and Ramirez coming through the walk-off or... You know, just guys stepping up who weren't expected. So I think there is definitely, you know, 100% that mentality in that room of next man up and nothing is going to phase this team because they've sort of been through everything you could expect and many things you wouldn't have expected. Yeah, and you mentioned Josh Tomlin, and the perception coming into the playoffs was that the Indians were going to be weak whenever Kluber and Bauer weren't starting, and that hasn't happened. And I wrote something for The Ringer about how the Indians' starting pitching has allowed them to leverage that bullpen, because, you know, if you don't have early leads, then you don't have any leads to hold. So how good should we expect Tomlin to be? I know he made some changes with his pitch selection, but... Are we wrong to just sort of say, oh, Josh Tomlin, back of the rotation starter? Is he actually any better than that now? Well, I mean, he was going through a lot in August, whether, you know, you could look at on field and look at, you know, he got really cutter happy and kind of got away from his game plan. And then off the field, he was going through a lot as well. His dad was going through a serious health issue that Anthony Castrovins just recently wrote about. So he had a lot going on in August and it turned into just the worst month of his career. And he was able to kind of bounce back and, and really perform well down the stretch and, and into the playoffs. And I think this isn't Josh Tomlin, and what we saw in August isn't Josh Tomlin. It's something in the middle. It always is. And I think there is that fear of would the regression to the mean occur. But what we've seen, as you pointed out, is because of the way you can leverage that bullpen right now, if you get four innings out of them, that's a win in the playoff setting, the way Francona's handling this. And I think he's kind of taking that approach with each one of those guys after Kluber. We saw it in game one of the series against the Red Sox when Bauer was pulled in the fifth. and That's when Miller first came in, and we were like, all right, this is how it's going to be this October. You know, so I think, to your point, is Josh Tomlin this good? Maybe not. But is he this good under these circumstances where they're facing one team over and over and over? He's able to game plan. He's one of the better sort of pitching to a game plan type pitchers there are. 
And I think maybe he is due for a little bit of regression. Maybe he's not as good of a matchup for this Cubs lineup. We'll see. But I, I think he's definitely been sort of one of the unsung heroes of this playoff run to date. And I want to circle back to the last question about the mentality of this team. And one thing that I really like just as as an observer is how they sort of took like Toronto's a really tough place to play that the Blue Jays themselves have a lot of attitude. The dome is just really loud. It's a really hostile environment. And we saw Bauer in particular, but the Indians in general sort of feed off of that. And going into a situation where they are the less nationally covered of the the two teams, certainly probably the underdog into an environment that I don't even know how how to predict uh, what Wrigley's going to be like. How does that that set up? You know, you posted a quote, a great quote from Terry Francona on Twitter that had influences from the speech from Hoosiers, the speech from the Goonies. Like, you know, what is this team sort of thinking and feeling right now? And how how do you think they're going to react to this stage? I'll tell you what, this team is always looking for somebody who didn't believe in them. And they, they just clasp onto that. You know, Jose Bautista had the couple comments throughout the series. He had the circumstances quote. You know, he had the quote about Ryan Merritt's going to be shaking in his boots. And that was also something that the team really grasped onto. I mean, in the celebration, when they clinched the spot in the World Series, you know, they the team kind of egged Merritt on to go into his locker and get out his boots. And he was shaking his boots as they were spraying champagne, you know, and they were, you know, a lot of people would just are dropping the word circumstances into quotes when we're asking <laughs> these questions now. And they're doing it with smirks on their faces. And, you know, Bauer is kind of the king troll among them. And it's sort of... That is the embodiment of the way this team has been. They like being the underdog. They like sort of rallying around people who say things about them or don't believe in them. There was obviously the well-publicized incident with Paul Hoynes, the writer up here, a longtime beat reporter, who after the Carrasco injury wrote a column basically saying this team's done. There's no way they can win now. And let me tell you, man, that guy has had more champagne and beer on him than anyone <laughs> in these in this run. And they've kind of forgiven him, and they've been they've been cool to him since then. But again, it's kind of your point that they look for something to rally around externally, and they're very internally motivated as well. And it's just kind of all fueled that mentality that that we've kind of already spoken on. So we talked earlier in this episode about what the Cubs might do to try to counteract what the Indians might do against John Lester. So now we should ask about what you actually think they will do. We've seen Terry Francona not be bound by tradition and decorum when it comes to managing this October. Do you think that will extend to the Indians' base running approach against Lester? Will we see them not just dance off first and try to distract him, but actually try to take advantage of everything he gives them. And not only that, how do they set up the the lineup too? Because you want to get Guyers bat in there against the lefty, but you also probably want to have Davis and Chris up there to run in case they get on base. Yeah, that's going to be interesting because we, we posed that in the last round. We were wondering if Rajay Davis would be in the lineup when he's not typically in the lineup. And Tito said he had thought about it, but then we didn't really see that come to fruition because he really likes having Rajay available off the bench when he's not starting and you know we also like he also likes having better defense late in the game where if Chris was starting the game he likes to be able to replace him late if if the lead's close so it's going to be interesting how he constructs that lineup but I do think that will be something they look to exploit we saw against the Blue Jays Russell Martin you know he had one of the lower caught stealing rates the Blue Jays pitchers times were not great 
and the Indians tried to exploit that as much as they could. I think they were successful on most of the attempts. One where they weren't, I believe, went to review. So that is a strength of the Indians. Not only stealing bases, but moving up on balls in the dirt, taking extra bases, going first to third. And I think when Lester's on the mound, I definitely think that's going to be something the Indians try to use to their advantage with some of the weapons that they do have in that lineup. And in the uh, the NLCS, probably the breakout star from the National League bracket has been Javi Baez, who you know is a young defense-first Puerto Rican infielder, uh, has been just the, the breakout star. But Francisco Lindor fits that bill as well. And maybe it's because the Indians haven't gotten as much press or they've been playing in the afternoon. But, you know, Lindor's the, the better player. He, by all rights, ought to be, you know, the, the guy on the cover of the, the World Series DVD if the, the Indians go on and win this. So, you know, what's he like to cover, to watch every day? You know, what are our fans, uh, you know, missing from, from him? Oh, I mean, Francisco Lindor is, he's a special player. You know, he's got a lot, his enthusiasm is infectious. You know, not just among his teammates, but it's like, I mean, you can't help but smile when when you're interviewing him. I mean, the guy's always smiling. He loves looking up at the scoreboard after he makes a great play, and you'll see him clapping and smiling on the field. He doesn't hide it, you know, and I think I, I think that's great. You know, he doesn't try and, you know, abide by those unwritten rules of you got to always be stoic on the field. You know, he's like, hey, I made a great play. I'm going to enjoy it. You know, and he does it a lot because he makes a lot of great plays. And he's been sort of a, the MVP of this team this year. You could make a case for Ramirez just for the, the value he brought unexpectedly. But from start to finish, Francisco Lindor has played arguably the best shortstop in the American League. And he stepped into that number three spot of the lineup with Michael Brantley out, you know, hit there all year and provided really solid offense across the board. And, you know, I think if you look at the Indians record, you know, since he was called up, it's pretty impressive. Not that he's the only factor there, but he's a big factor. And at 22 years old, you know, he's already become a leader within the clubhouse and on the field. And, you know, it's been pretty, uh, pretty fun to watch this guy on a day-to-day basis blossom into kind of a star at such a young age. And when Cleveland loses the DH in the games in Wrigley, do you expect Francona to try to keep Napoli and Santana in the lineup somehow, or do you think they just lose one of those guys? They'll lose one of those guys. I mean, there's not really a spot for them. I know they both have catcher in their background, but that was so long ago, and they're so far removed from that, that I really just don't envision a scenario where both of them can be in the lineup. So I I imagine it'll be matchup-based, and it'll kind of be you know game-to-game decision for Terry Frick going on along those lines. Napoli has been struggling more. If you look back to all the way back to September 1st, you know, he's been the colder of the hitters. So if you, if it's a riding the hot hand situation, Santana has been arguably the most productive bat for the Indians over the last six weeks. So, you know, if it's that type of situation, I could see Santana in there. But again, I think Tito will probably look match up day to day when he's making that call. And coming out of the ALCS, I wrote about how the Blue Jays really couldn't have been expected to prepare for that two-headed monster. And, and before that, Dan Otero and, and Shaw coming out of the bullpen. But then looking back on it, I was like, what can you do about it, even if you know it's coming? So I was wondering, you know, you see the, you've seen these guys throughout the second half of the season. You've seen what they've done the past couple of weeks. Do you have any ideas on on how the Cubs might attack the back end of this bullpen or is it just if you don't get that lead early then you're in serious trouble yeah i loved what august uh Fagerstrom wrote the other day on fangraphs how to beat andrew miller and it was basically uh you can't get a get a lead on the starter and don't have miller come into the game 
and honestly, I don't know how you I don't know how you do it. If it gets into a situation where maybe Otero or another reliever comes in before the the Miller zone of the game, you know, maybe that's when the offense has to strike, but I really think it's going to be imperative for the Cubs and to try and break through against the starting pitcher because we've seen the Indians offense has not been on a tear this October. They haven't scored a ton of runs but they've scored just enough to get that slim lead and get into that zone of the game where Miller and Shaw and Allen can do it. The other thing would be work Miller's pitch count up as high high and as fast as you can so he can't extend into two, three inning outings, you know, because then you would have more of an opportunity to try and attack Shaw before you get to Cody Allen. You know, I think that those would kind of be the ideas, but it's easier said than done. I think Kluber is going to be a tough guy to, to break through against, but we've seen teams kind of ambush him and try and be in attack mode early, especially with as much as he throws strikes. And then with Josh Tomlin, you know, it's another guy that you can't sit around and wait for your pitch, or next thing you know, you're down 0-2 because he just pounds the strikes on so much. So, again, I think it's going to be having to try and find a way to break through against Bauer, against Kluber, against Tomlin, and try and avoid a situation where, Miller is in that that part of the game where he can lock down that lead. Yeah, how do they decide what sequence to use those guys in? Because we've seen Miller be one of the first guys out of the pen. We've seen him be the last guy out of the pen. We've seen he and Allen will be flip-flopped in certain games. So do you have any sense of how they decide which one to use first, assuming you're probably going to use both at some point? Well, a lot of times it just deals with what section of the lineup is coming up or or, in a lot of matchups like that. You know, if... If there's a string of lefties coming up, Miller's usually the guy. I know the other day when Allen came in first and Miller closed it, what Francona had said was he wanted Allen, I believe if I'm remembering correctly, he wanted Allen to go through the heart of the order because Miller had done it the last few times. You know, And Tito puts a very high emphasis on high stress innings, not just pitch count or innings or things like that. He'll look at the stress level of the innings that his pitchers are doing and kind of take that into account as well. And so I think that was a situation where he felt he wanted to flip-flop them so Allen had a turn at the higher stress inning, so to speak. So there's a variety of factors, but a lot of it's matchup-based. And that's why I still don't think in all of his time here in Cleveland, I don't think Francona has ever called Cody Allen a closer. I think we are all just the people who call him the closer because he gets most of the saves and pitches the ninth most of the time. But I honestly don't know if Terry Fracona has ever uttered the word closer in his tenure in Cleveland, and I love that. I think it's great, and I think that's the way bullpens should be used. All right, so you can find Jordan's work at MLB.com. You can also find it linked on his Twitter account at MLBastion. Jordan, thanks a lot. No problem. Anytime, guys. Okay, so we have heard from one representative from both sides. Before we bring this thing to a close, you have some questions to ask me. All right. Total innings pitched by Cody Allen and Andrew Miller in this series, over under nine and two thirds. Oh, man. All right. So are you going to ask me to make a series prediction? No, I'm not. I'm not even going to I'm not even going to ask you to tell me how many games it's going to go because that would just be too easy. <laughs> well, maybe you can infer from my answer to this question, but I'll say between the two of those guys, I'm going to go under. Okay. Yeah. That's, I am drawing actually quite a, a surprising inference from that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if this series goes long, then I think yeah. that's, that's going to be over, obviously. So I'm, yeah. I'm going to say well, under. The inference I'm drawing is you're predicting two complete game shutouts <laughs> from Corey Kluber. <laughs> actually, Ryan Merritt. Oh, yeah. There we go. All right. (laughs) 
who will have more plate appearances in this series, Kyle Schwarber or Jason Hayward? <laughs> I'll go Hayward, but I like the question and Schwarber would be fun. Yeah, I, I'd i go Hayward. I don't know if it's if it'd be smart, but even though Sahadov just told us that he thinks that Schwarber's going to DH for however many games, like there's just some part of me that isn't going to believe that until, right. until I see it. All mm-hmm. right, so two 25-man rosters, that's 50 total players. How many out of those 50 actually get used? <laughs> well, we know Joe Madden will probably use all of them, right? So I would think it's got to be pretty close, maybe 48. Yeah, that was that was a number I had in my head, too. I think, mm-hmm. and particularly considering how how much variance there is in Cleveland's pitching staff, and you know Terry yeah. Francona likes to platoon a lot. So, yeah, I think it's if it's not fifty, it's going to be either forty eight or forty nine. Yeah. All right, Javier Baez's career OPS is six eighty in the regular season. Are you going over or under that for the World Series? In theory, you should take under because it's cold and he'll be facing good pitching. So there's no reason to expect him to be better than he has been in this series, except for the fact that he's been really good in the two series that preceded it. But I'll say he's a better player than he was when he was first in the majors and was, you know, producing the the first stats that influenced that average. So I will take the over. Okay. I'd go under. I think just this has not been a very, uh, hitter-friendly playoffs in general. No, not at all. There's a lot of swing and miss in in Javi Baez still, and there's a lot of swing and miss in that Cleveland pitching staff. And the last one, LeBron James and Dwayne Wade. (laughs) uh, These are basketball players, Ben. Um, Yes, right. (laughs) uh, Wade is from Chicago. Uh, LeBron is from – he's not really from Cleveland. He's from Akron, and this is all just very convenient. But the two of them have said on Twitter that they will make a friendly wager on the outcome of this World Series. My question to you is – Will the terms of that wager ever become public? <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Athletes are social media stars, so I would say that they would not let that content go untweeted. Okay, fair enough. All right. All right that is all, all the information I want from you. I am completely disinterested in who wins or how many games this, this series <laughs> takes. I'm happy to hear that. All right, so we have gotten all the previewing out of the way. That means the World Series can start, and we will be back with another episode of the Ringer MLB show toward the end of the week to talk about what has transpired by then. Talk to you then. All right. All right.